0: You guys, go ahead and take a seat, and happy Easter. Uh, If you are new here, my name is Billy. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at City Church. Uh, We are a three and a half, I guess almost four-year-old church plant, uh, and we are just honored that you decided to worship with us. Did you know that the top 10 highest grossing movies of all time are all superhero and fantasy movies? I was kind of surprised by that, but here's why. Did you know that every superhero movie, every, every good guy story, every underdog story, uh, it, it's built into us, this feeling. It's why we, love, why we love when the underdog wins. It's why we love Beauty and the Beast with movies that show that inner beauty is actually what's real. Have you ever thought about for a second why we love these type of stories? Why Rudy resonates with us or why we like the movie Blindside? Have you ever thought about it? Well, here's why. It's because eternity is built into our design. You see, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. Did you know that every single civilization, literally, that's ever existed has had God at the center of it? The reason is, is because all of us long for something more. It's built into us. You cannot escape it. It's there. It's like what C.S. Lewis said famously, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, well, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. See, none of this is an accident. You can try to explain it away. But there's a reason that you have a God-sized hole in your heart like the famous philosopher Blaise Pascal said. There's a reason why you try to fill it with significance and beauty and it never seems to work. There's a reason why you get lost in a song And you can't explain why or the reason why you feel the way that you do. There's a reason why love is more than just a bunch of molecules that somehow collided over the course of millions of years through evolutionary process. And and you're somehow in some way falling in love with somebody and yet there's no explanation for it. There's a reason for that and it's not survival of the fittest. There's a reason why deep down you know that there is a right and a wrong. And your definition of right and wrong has no It's not determined by the outcome of probability throughout history. Like you realize that the Nazi regime was always going to be wrong even if they won the war. There's a reason why. You see, love and beauty, right and wrong, eternity and meaning, they're only possible if God exists. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that science has no reason for why? It can explain what, but not why. It can't explain to you why you feel the way you do. It can't explain love. It can't explain music. It can't explain right and wrong. Have you ever wrestled with the fact that if there is no God, then none of those feelings matter? Now, let me ask you this. If all that is true, is what you are living for worth it? See, I recently read a book um, called 4,000 Weeks. And and, and basically, the premise of the book is that that's about the, the, the span of your life. And if you think about it, that's not really that long. Sometimes I I look at my kids and I I think, what happened? Like, I remember holding you in the hospital, and now you're talking back all the time. (laughs) Like, where'd this come from? And the cruelest part about time is the longer you have it, the quicker it seems to go by, right? The Roman philosopher Seneca said it like this in a letter called The Shortness of Life. He said, this space that has been granted to us rushes by so speedily and so swiftly that all save a very few find life, listen, at the end, just when they're ready to start living. So is it worth it? When those 4,000 weeks come to an end, did you leverage your life for something that matters? See, this is why the resurrection matters so much, because if the resurrection is true, then it actually brings meaning to your life. It proves that everything you experience matters. It proves that love and beauty and justice And eternity aren't just some fairy tales that uneducated people believe, but they're actually rational and reasonable. So if you have your Bible, I want to continue on in the story of Luke 24. The reason why I say that is because on Good Friday, I walked through Luke 23, uh, and now we're in Luke 24. So if you grab your Bible, meet me in Luke chapter 24, verse 1, and I want to show you this today. You ready? It's on the screens. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Today, I'm going to do my best to show you that the resurrection is the most historically valid event in all of antiquity. That is a big statement, but I want to show you that you can see that from the text. I want you to walk away from here today with confidence. If you are a skeptic, and you just showed up today or you're watching online, I want you to see that this isn't just some uneducated fairy tale, but most reasonable thing you can do after you look at the evidence is walk away having confidence that Jesus is who he said that he is. See, there are questions that are super important that you need to answer, and listen, I don't want you to just to have blind faith or unreasonable faith. The faith that I have hinges on the resurrection, and I think that it's historically overwhelming that it's true. So let me break this down for you for just a second. There are so many details in this text that when you look at them, it's obvious. Like this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn. This small detail that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week should make you start thinking. Because if you know anything about history, the first day of the week was Saturday. And yet this is a Sunday. That might not seem super, super significant to you, but listen, listen. The church in all of the Western world changed the rhythms of their life based off of this event. Think about that for a second. Think about how amazing this is. Before the resurrection, Sunday was not the first day of the week. Everything changed with Jesus. Everything. The Sabbath day changed for the religious world. The workday changed for all of the world. And if you don't know this, during the French Revolution, they tried to upend this. It didn't work out so well because it's built into the fabric of our being. This might not seem like a big deal to you, but think about it. Something significant happened in our world 2,000 years ago. So significant that we actually even measure time by Jesus. You see, the women who followed Jesus, they couldn't come to the tomb. They had to come to the tomb on Sunday because they couldn't come because of the Sabbath laws that they wanted to honor God for. So they woke up at early dawn on Sunday to go to the tomb to find Jesus. So check it out. They went to the tomb. It says taking spices that they prepared. Now I do this with our church every week because I'm a Bible teacher. I want to walk through the Bible and have confidence in the Bible. So who are they? That's a good question. Well, the text tells us if you look with me at verse 10. Look in your Bible, scroll down to verse 10. It tells you exactly who they are. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the mother uh, and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles so that they are these women? Now, I want you to take a second. This is going to be difficult for you to do, but I need you to take your 21st century worldview, take it off for just a second, place it in a box, and put yourself in a first century worldview, and so you can see what's happening here. On Sunday morning, this group of ladies they walked to a tomb that was guarded. Every one of the uh, Gospels tells us this, guarded. By Roman soldiers whose job it was to not let you into that tomb. By the way, if anybody got into this tomb, this tomb that was sealed with the Roman seal on it, the person who paid was the Roman soldier and he paid with his life. Think about that. Do you really think that a group of women could have overpowered the most powerful army in the world to get into that tomb when that guy's life was on the line? Now, maybe you're thinking, well, they just made that up. You can write whatever you want in there. Get away with that. What makes you think that that would have happened? Think about this. The same people who crucified Jesus were the same people that didn't want you to hold what you're holding in your hand. You ever think about that? The odds were stacked against you to even have this Bible? It's not as if... Like they just wrote it and everybody was good with it. This word upended the entire worldview of their society. So much so that the Roman authorities killed the leader of it. And now you've got a group of people writing these letters convincing people of what the Romans said was a lie. The only way that something like this would survive 2,000 years of scrutiny is if it were true. Y'all, the gospel turned the authority of the world upside down. This stuff doesn't just happen if it's not true. So before I even show you this super cool detail, let me point out the obvious. There's absolutely no way that what you are reading right now, you should be reading. The Roman powers of that day wanted to squash this lie that they said was made up. And they and listen, they squashed the leader of the lie. Do you not think they could have squashed the movement too? Have you ever thought about that? They literally killed Jesus who started this movement. They could have killed the movement too. You see, there's one thing that no secular historian can account for. You can ask any of them, any atheist, secular historian, here's what they cannot account for. How a worldwide religion started overnight. It's not possible and it's never happened before and yet it happens right here. That you have this event that's historically happened that they killed a man named Jesus and literally overnight there are thousands of people worshiping Jesus. They followed a guy who was poor, had 11 followers, never traveled more than 200 miles from home, and never authored his own book. And yet, this man became the most influential person in human history. Think about that. In your Bible, the thing you hold in your hand, these 66 books written by 40 different authors over the course of a couple thousand years. Think about how amazing it is that you are holding in your hand against all odds this book. And every single New Testament writer makes the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Every one of them. Every one of them was tortured and killed other than John the apostle because he was boiled alive and then exiled to the island of Patmos. Every other one of them was killed for this. Listen, if you're going to die, you're not going to die for a lie. It's one thing to die for something you believe to be true, It's yet another thing to die for something you believe to be a lie. I'm just telling you, when you add up all of the pieces to the puzzle, the only reasonable thing you can come away with is that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, check these ladies out, and let me show you something amazing. Look at verse 10 again. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Again, 21st century worldview, take it off. First century Jewish worldview, put it on. In the Jewish world, women were not considered to have valid testimonies. Do you realize that this is the, let me me say it in the most absurd way, the dumbest possible thing you could write if it's not true? Think about that. If you're going to make up a fairy tale, you would never in the world use women because nobody in the first century world would have ever believed them. Matter of fact, I want to point something out to you. Even the apostles didn't believe them. Look at verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. That's the apostles. And they did not believe them. It's right there in the text. Even the followers of Jesus did not believe these women. So Peter, because Peter has to be that guy, he gets up, he runs to the tomb, stooping in and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Here's why this is so important. The only reason why you would ever write in a recorded document of the resurrection that this happened this way is if it were true. By the way, something really cool. Most scholars will tell you that they believe, because Luke, Luke, when he writes the book, he tells you that he's writing an eyewitness account to a Roman named Theophilus. They will tell you that Luke's eyewitness account was probably from the mother of Jesus Mary herself. We know that based on the details of Jesus' birth and his resurrection. So what you're hearing here is firsthand eyewitness testimony from Mary. Here's the other thing that's really awesome. In a society that devalued women, the Bible is the most pro-woman book ever. Again, get out of your 21st century worldview for just a second and think about it. Nobody would have ever done this. In a society that took the voice away from women, God gives them a voice. I love this. God could have written this story any way he wanted, and yet he decided to use the most unlikely people on the planet to tell the greatest story in the world, and that's how God works. God uses underdogs. Why do you think we love them so much? Every story is the same one. He uses the humble. And every story that you have in this world is where God takes the things that society looks down on, and he elevates them up, and he gives them a name. So if you're sitting in this room ever wondering if you'd never be good enough for God, I think that's exactly what qualifies you to receive the gospel. That's why we love this kind of story so much. Keep reading with me. Go back to verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed, keep in mind that word there, you can underline in your Bible, we're going to come back to that in a second about this, behold, two men stood by in dazzling apparel. These are angels. And they, they, the women, were frightened, and they bowed their heads to the ground. And the men said to them, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. That word perplexed there, it means to be utterly lost for words. You know what they're saying? They didn't expect to find an empty tomb. See, sometimes I think that we think these people went into the tomb and they were ready for it. No, they were perplexed. They went there with spices because they went to prepare a dead body. They went to mourn the loss of their friend and that, really, they went to mourn the loss of any hope that they had in any, all eternity. See, maybe you come here today with the same sentiment. Maybe the only reason why you're here, the only reason why you showed up on this Easter Sunday is because that's what you're supposed to do. Right, it's a family holiday and mama guilted you into it and you want some of that honey baked (laughs) ham. Listen, I get that. But what if today, just like these ladies and like I'm gonna show you the apostle, what if you showed up a skeptic and you actually were unbiased for a second and you asked the real questions, could this be possible? Let me just ask you, are you willing to suspend your doubts for just a second and ask those questions? Are you willing to admit that you could be wrong I think that's one of the most humble questions you can ask yourself is could I be wrong about this? Are you willing to doubt your doubts? That's what Mary and the others had to wrestle with. They came to the tomb expecting to find a body, and they came finding two angels telling them that he's not there, that the tomb is empty. Verse five, and as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Again, in the most scandalous of ways, the angels make the most ridiculous statement ever. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? The thing that makes Christianity different than every other religion on the planet is that Christianity, watch this, is focused in the middle of history. Here's what I mean. You can create a fable that's unverifiable by creating Zeus or something else and or Buddha, or whatever, and, and, and not have to make any verifiable claims based on history. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus walked into first century Palestine, was born in Bethlehem, under the Roman authorities, and these events are recorded in historical documents. You can actually verify them, which means that Jesus's claims need to be investigated. The thing that makes Jesus so different than every other world religion Is that Jesus was crucified, buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And I'm just going to be honest with you. The next time you raise from the dead, the next time you can claim to be God. But until that time, you need to ask yourself, are you worthy of being your own God, or should you worship the one who did? See, that's the key here. The resurrection validates everything that Jesus ever said about himself. He is alive. Do you get that? You don't worship a dead guy. You don't worship Muhammad, who's dead, He literally died, never rose from the dead. You worship a living savior who can enter into your circumstances. You worship a guy who was powerful enough to defeat your greatest enemy. And if Jesus can raise from the dead, he can raise you back to life too. Now check out what the angel said next. This is really important. I actually underlined the words here for you. Remember how he told you, that's the first one, underline that phrase, while he was still in Galilee, that the son of man, that's the next one, And then the third one is must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified on the third day. Check these out. First, look at son of man. Look at son of man. When the angels say that Jesus is the son of man, they aren't just saying that he's the son of man like Elliot is the son of me. They're making a claim about Jesus that's really important. They're saying that Jesus is human. He's literally the son of man. That's super important. It means that Jesus can identify with you. He's not distant. Y'all, Jesus being fully human means that he can identify with you in every way. Jesus suffered like you do. Jesus was disappointed like you get. He experienced and he understands what you're going through. Listen, God gets it. He gets what you're going through. He understands you. He understands what it's like to be human. He understands what it's like to live the last two years like we lived. See, that's why this phrase is so important, and that's why the next one is so important. The next one is, he must be delivered. Do you know why he had to be delivered? Can I tell you? Can I tell you how much God thinks of you? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and if you actually look at it, the first six days of creation... Are, are this beautiful poetic symmetry between the first three days and the, six, the second three days, and on the, the end of it, you see the culmination of his creation. You see the beautiful pinnacle of it, which is you. It says things were good, 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 and then he breathed life into you, and it says that you are very good because God created you in his image, in his imago day, so that he could be in relationship with you and worship you, or worship, so you could worship him for all of eternity. See, Jesus had to be delivered over to die because our sin literally separated us from him. And because it separated us, something had to bridge the gap. So Jesus condescended his own creation by coming down and putting on flesh, becoming the son of man so that you could become sons and daughters of God. The resurrection matters because Jesus died in your place and then rose from the dead. That means that Jesus defeated death God became man so that you could become his son or daughter again. Sometimes we get so familiar with the resurrection story that we lose the beauty of what's happening on this Easter Sunday. Do you see how amazing the resurrection is? It answers all of life's biggest questions. How can a holy God who's perfect have anything to do with sinful people? Jesus is how. That's why we say around here that the gospel in four words is Jesus in my place. Now back to that word son of man, it actually has a second meaning and it connects the dots for the last phrase that I told you, which is he told you. That word son of man, it's it's an Old Testament prophecy that goes back to the book of Daniel. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. It's in Daniel 7. Look what it says. Daniel tells us this, I saw in the night's visions, meaning he's having visions or dreams, and behold, with clouds of heaven there came, here it is, one like the son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. If you read the Old Testament, the Ancient of Days is God the Father. And he was presented before him. And to him was given, watch this, God the Father gave to Jesus, the Son of Man. He gave him dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages, it's the same language you see in Revelation 7, where at the end of time, we will all stand around the throne of God. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping Jesus. Saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. All Peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In Daniel's vision, we see that because of the resurrection, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gave the kingdom to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Did you know that there are over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled? You see, that's a big deal. Jesus didn't just die and raise from the dead. Jesus told his disciples that he was going to do it. What he's telling you, in all of the the, the most perplexing of ways, nobody expected the resurrection. And yet Jesus was telling you, I've been telling you the entire time I'm going to do this. Do you realize that there is no Jewish literature on the planet that expected a resurrection to happen in the middle of history by one guy? All Jewish historians would tell you that they expected a resurrection to happen at the end of time. But none of them expected this. That's what makes this so amazing. Jesus burst into human history, and he became the signpost to a better reality. He fulfilled the entire Bible. It's all about Jesus. Listen, your entire Bible, it only makes sense if Jesus rose from the dead, and that's the point. He proved that he rose from the dead. Listen, write it down. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that he's the point. And he's the hope. That hope there is that he'll fix your brokenness. If you remember, Daniel chapter seven is a vision of what's going to happen. Look at Revelation chapter twenty-one, which is the last part of the Bible. Look what he says is going to happen. Maybe one of my favorite verses in all the Scripture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven had passed away and the sea was no more. I always pause here because I'm a skeptic. So I'm like, what do you mean? There's not going to be oceans in heaven? Now, that's actually not what it's saying. If you actually read the Bible, the sea was everything that you could not control in life. Think about it. God parted the Red Sea. He controlled the uncontrollable. And when, when the disciples are on the sea and, and the storms are waving, listen, well, here's what he's saying. He's going to fix all the uncontrollable things of life. That's a beautiful picture. And I saw a holy city a New Jerusalem. This is important. Coming down out of heaven from God. Did you know this? And I'm going to show you this in a second. Heaven is not going to be out there. It's going to be here. God's coming down. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You see, Jesus brought it back together. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, the way that it was always supposed to be, the way that Genesis 1 and 2 said we're supposed to have it. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. See, Jesus is the proof that he's going to fix the mess of this world. The resurrection shows you that. I love the way J.R.R. Tolkien, the famous writer of Lord of the Rings, said it. God is going to make all the sad things become untrue. Listen, I know the last couple years have been really hard. We've gone through a life-changing pandemic. We've watching a terrible war unfold right in front of our eyes. Inflation is at an all-time high. Some of you have been sick and you've watched people die. And honestly, it's probably not over yet. But the resurrection is proof that God's going to fix this mess. It's proof that when everything seems lost, God will do the unexpected. Now listen, the resurrection also proves not only that one day God will fix this mess, because I think you need hope right now. The resurrection proves, like the angel said, that he is alive right now. He you realize the very last words that Jesus said in Matthew 28 is, all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to me. Go, therefore, he says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And this is what he says, and behold, I am with you. I am with you. Like, right now, he is with you. If you need hope right now, you have it because you worship a Savior who is alive. The resurrection means that you can come alive right now. Jesus even said that. Same one who entered into your pain, the same one who will fix everything, he's the same one that came to live inside of you right now to give you life, as John says, in life to the fullest. Even in your suffering, even in your hurt, even in your pain and in your sorrow, you have a living God who wants to comfort you right now. Listen, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives inside of everyone who believes. So not only was Jesus fully human, he was fully God. See, the God man, the one who put on flesh, the one who condescended himself, who stepped off of his throne in heaven, who lived your perfect life and died your death, is the only one who can bring you back to himself, and that's how much he loves you. This story is so ridiculous. It's so crazy that you couldn't make it up. Nobody would think this stuff. Deep down, we all know it's true. It's why, if you didn't know this, every Disney movie likes to play on the Jesus themes. It's why every superhero movie is about Jesus. It's why we love them all. So let me take just a second, and that's the apologetic, if you will, of Easter. Let me tell you why this matters for you. Flip over in your Bible just one book to maybe the most famous passage in the Bible, which is John 3, 16. Here's what it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. By the way, here's what the resurrection means for you, but let me just tell you this. I'm trying to convince you that a dead guy rose from the grave. Here, I want you to hear me say this. I'm so confident in this that I don't want you to take my word for it. Matter of fact, you shouldn't take my word for it. Go investigate it yourself. A guy named N. T. Wright wrote a thousand page book on the resurrection. He is a historian from Oxford University. If you really want to dig into it, go read his book. I just don't want you to walk in here and be like, Well, that guy told me it, so it must be true, or that guy's not smart, like so it must not be true. Go find out for yourself. Here's number one. It means that you will live for eternity. See, no matter if you leave here a follower of Jesus or not, you will live for eternity. The resurrection means that you will rise too. That's the amazing thing. If you continue to read Luke chapter 24, what we see is the risen Jesus follows a bunch of people. And with some men on this road called the road to Emmaus, and he talks to them. Then he has a meal with his disciples. Y'all, he's alive. He's walking, he's eating, he's alive. Don't you get it? If Jesus rose from the dead, you will too. Like, if you ever wondered what will happen to me when I die, here's what I can tell you. The resurrection answers that question. You aren't going to go off and float off into some faraway cloud and play the harp all day long and sing Chris Tomlin songs. As nice as that might sound to you, that would get boring to me. That's not the point. The point is that your king is going to come down to live with you. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 calls you an image bearer, which means that you're a co-creator. Do you realize this? Do you know how much significance this gives you? When the Bible created you, it says you're created in the image of God, which means you do the very things that God does. You're a creator. That's why whenever you get up and you go to work, or whatever you you do and you find joy in, you find that this stuff is good. The point is that you are going to get to do this for all of eternity without any of the pain of this world. I love the way that N.T. Wright says it. He says the resurrection means that it's not life than death, but life then death than life again. In a physical body. Not like Plato, or the Greek philosopher said, where you'll be some soul apart from your body. No, you'll be reunited in a physical form with Jesus. Just like Jesus rose from the dead in a physical body. It means that everything you do right now matters. Your work matters. And you're going to work for all of eternity, except you're going to love it. And there won't be taxes. (laughs) Love matters because it's teaching you that there's a better love, a more affectionate love. And what you feel right now actually matters. Listen, you don't need a bucket list. You realize you only have a bucket list if you're not going to experience anything for all of eternity. And yet, the Bible says you're going to get to have all of eternity to do everything you've ever wanted to do. So spend your life doing the things that matter now. When Jesus rose from the dead in a real physical body, he proved that you will too. Number two, this is so important. It means that God's not mad at you. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the cosmos, the world, including you. See, many of us think that God's disappointed in us, but the resurrection proves that that's just not true. He's not angry at you. I tell our church all the time, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. There's nothing you've ever done to make God love you any less because it's not dependent upon what you do. It's about what he did. That's the gospel. You didn't earn it, and you can't lose it. I remember the first time, again, with my kids, holding them in the hospital. I I held my daughter, Emma, in Duke Hospital and just looked at her and instantly fell in love. Like there was nothing in this world that I had ever treasured as much as that in that moment. There was some connection there. Do you know how much of that she earned in that moment? Zero. Zero. She got my love and affection simply because she was my daughter. Y'all, what makes you think that you're not loved the same exact way by God? That you don't have a father who cares that deeply about you, that you don't have a father who knows every hair on your head, that knew you in your mother's womb, that set his affections on you, as Romans 5 8 said, while you were still in your sins. Listen, when my kids are at their worst, that's when I bring them in the most. I don't reject them whenever they've messed up the worst. I give them a hug. Oftentimes, we think that God pushes us away. But that's not the truth. God brings you in. As a matter of fact, he can't push you away. He wouldn't be God if he did. Because Jesus already paid your penalty so that he could receive his people. John 3.16 shows you that not only did he have to die for you, he wanted to die for you. Here's number three, the last one. It means that we have to respond. See, the resurrection leaves us in a position where we have to respond. It's not possible to be neutral. What's fascinating to me is that right after the women come back to the apostles to tell them that they found an empty tomb, they were left with a choice and so were the apostles. You see what Jesus did, or you see what Peter did. Look at verse 10. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostle the apostles, but these words seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And Peter rose and he ran, stooping in, looking, and he saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went away, marveling what had happened. Notice this: Peter walked in with unbelief. See, I think it's necessary. Before you can blindly believe, you should be a bit of a skeptic. Again, I'm trying to convince you that a man rose from the dead, and this is some pretty unbelievable stuff. Like all miracles, you have to suspend the natural in order for the supernatural to happen. But they didn't stop there. They didn't just stop with unbelief. Did you notice what they did next? They investigated. Peter ran to the tomb he stooped in and he looked and he saw that word saw it's the greek word blepo which literally means to investigate to look with intention peter investigated he walked in a skeptic he left a worshiper my question is what about you think about it peter he starts to do the math in his head the stone is rolled away like who could have done that It was huge. And there was a guy there guarding the tomb who was not motivated to lose his life. And the clothes, John's gospel tells us that the clothes were folded up neatly. I'm just telling you, if you're going to go steal a body, you don't stay behind to do your laundry. So Peter, he looks in and he investigates. And the only thing that he could walk away with, the same guy who was a skeptic, ended up walking away looking at the crucified Messiah who had raised from the dead. And this guy... The guy who denied Jesus three times was crucified upside down, history would tell us, because he believed so deeply that Jesus really was who he said that he was. Might I conclude that the only conclusion you can make, if you look at the evidence with an unbiased lens, if you're willing to suspend your skepticism for just a second, is that Jesus really is who he said that he is. Like C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford professor who was once an atheist, said, after investigating the resurrection, there were only three possibilities Jesus was either a liar who lied to you and he knew exactly what he was doing, or he was a lunatic that was just off of his rocker, or he was Lord. What Jesus could not be is just a good moral teacher if he was God. So let me just ask you do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said that he is? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Because a claim this big demands a response. Is Jesus a liar? Be honest. Is he crazy? Or is he Lord? Because if he's God, the only response worthy is your very life for his. That's what John says. Whoever believes in him gets eternal life. That starts right now. That's what the resurrection means. Easter Sunday, you and I worship a risen Savior.